All right, if you want to grab a seat, pull out your Bible. If you've got that in a hard copy or uh, in a digital copy, you can open it up to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be in the first nine verses of that this morning. Uh, and while you get set, I'm just going to jump, uh, I'm going to jump right in with a story. 75 years ago, uh, a small Philadelphia area congregation watched as three nine-year-old boys were baptized and joined their church. Not long after that morning, uh, the church was unable to continue on with its dwindling membership, and so it eventually sold its building, and then the congregation disbanded. One of the boys present there being baptized on that morning in Philadelphia was Tony Campolo, who's now a pastor, an author, and a professor. And Dr. Campolo remembers, quote, years later I was doing research in the archives of our denomination. I decided to look up the church report for the year of my baptism. There was my name and Dick White's. He's now a missionary. Bert Newman, now a theology professor at an African seminary, was also there. Then I read the church report for that year. Quote, it has not been a good year for our church. We have lost 27 members. Three joined, but they were only children. Unable to continue on due to a dwindling congregation, a pastor there of that church, I can just envision him sitting in his office thinking about three young boys baptized and 27 people who left, thinking about having to sell their building and disband the congregation and writing with a heavy heart. It's just not been a good year. But history would prove out, and this, the pastor of this congregation 75 years ago probably didn't even live to see the day that Tony Campolo became Tony Campolo, and Dick White became a missionary, and Bert Newman became a theology professor, but we would look back now and say, that wasn't a bad year. That was a pretty good year. I think any church would take a year with three nine-year-olds who end up being what those three nine-year-olds ended up being. They went on to do amazing work for the Lord, and we can say by extension that that Philadelphia congregation did some amazing work on behalf of the Lord. This morning, we're going to talk about and look at the kind of work and the kind of effort we give for the sake of the Lord. And above all else, I hope this morning is encouraging to you. I hope it's uh, a little bit convicting. I hope it's the kind of encouraging that's challenging and motivating that causes us to want to get up out of our seats and go and get our hands dirty for the sake of the Lord's glory and the expanse of His kingdom, because that kind of work matters. It matters Deeply, And oftentimes we can't see the fullness of what it is that we're doing when we're working for the sake of the Lord. In fact, one pastor whose sermon that I read uh, about this passage of Haggai, he entitled the sermon, You Build More Than You Can See. That's what I hope our hearts are stirred by this morning. Our work on behalf of the Lord matters not because of the scope of what we do or the size of what we do. It's not about its visibility or its grandeur. Our work matters. Our work that's motivated and sustained by the grace of God, it matters because the Lord is worthy of that work. He is present in that work, and He is strong in that work. That's what we're going to see this morning. Haggai chapter 1, we saw that the Lord is worthy 
We saw that the Lord is present. This morning, we're going to see what it means exactly that the Lord is strong. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather together as a church body to celebrate baptisms all morning long. God, your strong work to transform a person from death to life, to raise them up in a newness of life and allow them to walk forward in the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, that is amazing. And the chance for us to celebrate that as a church is a true blessing. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the mothers among us today, both in our own lives, but also in the life of our church. God, thank you for uh, the women that you've given this congregation, the way that you've blessed families and this church family, Lord, the way that you've worked in and through the mothers in this congregation uh, to do uh, faithful, obedient work on your behalf. God, thank you for the chance supremely to come and to glorify and to honor you. God, I pray that that's what this morning would be about. God, that as we look at your word, Lord, that we would see your glory in it. God, I pray that as we dig through these nine verses, God, that your Holy Spirit would work in us, Lord, that you would convict us and challenge us, Lord, that you would encourage us and motivate us, Lord, to work on your behalf. Lord, I pray that we would entrust the fruit of that work to you, that we would rely entirely on your strength to do your work, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We could go back to the book of Zephaniah and we could pick up all the truths that we've seen about who the Lord is and know that they're just as present here in Haggai and they're just as real about who God is in Haggai uh, as they were in Zephaniah. And they're just as real for us today as they were for Zephaniah and as they were in Haggai's day. That's because the Lord's unchanging. So the Lord speaks. We saw that in Zephaniah. The Lord is God exclusively. We saw that in Zephaniah. He's active. He's just. He's merciful. He saves. He's worthy. He's present. Today we're going to see that he is strong. And those are as true today as they were when Zephaniah and Haggai spoke those truths to their people. But they were as true in that day as they were when the Lord created. He is fully and always all of who he is in all of his character. It's one of the beauties of who the Lord is. And we come to this passage in Haggai. And just the general context here, the Israelites were uh, carried off into exile. They got to come back. When they came back, uh, 50,000 of them went back to Jerusalem. They laid the foundation of the temple. Uh, They were very excited about it. And then for 16 years, they completely stopped working. And it the end of that 16 years, the Lord sent Haggai, the prophet, to speak the Lord's message to his people and shake them out of their indifference and their apathy, and it works. The people repent, and they obey, and they set to work, and as they get to work on finishing the temple, they realize this isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. And so the Lord sends Haggai back to them another time in order to encourage them. And his message is simple, be strong. What we're going to see this morning is that any strength we have in our work for the Lord comes from the fact that he is strong. Let's just read these nine verses. Haggai 2, 1 to 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? 
How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Do not be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord is strong. Three times in that passage, we see the encouragement for the Israelite people to be strong. But their strength comes from the strength of the Lord. We're going to work our way through this, but I want to start in verse 1. And nothing in Scripture is inconsequential or insignificant. And so even though Haggai 2 verse 1 seems like it's just a date statement, uh, there's a reason that it's given. We're told that this message from the Lord through Haggai comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. That would have been the last day of what is known as the Festival of Shelters or the Feast of Shelters, the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. You can go and read about that in Leviticus 23. It gives a full explanation of what the Israelites were supposed to do. The gist of that festival was that in the seventh month, which we would think of as July, but in their calendar was actually October, At the end of the agricultural season, so when all of the harvesting had been done and everything had been taken into the storehouses, the Israelite people were supposed to leave their homes and go out and congregate in a giant uh, mass of people in a huge field somewhere, and they were to build tents and live in those tents for eight days from a Sunday to a Sunday. The reason was that they were commemorating what it is that the Lord had done in preserving his people as they wandered in the wilderness after the Exodus event from Egypt. And so they built these shelters that were very similar to what the people would have dwelled in for 40 years while they wandered around in the wilderness. And the whole point was to just be reminded that the Lord cared for and provided for his people in the wilderness, and the Lord will care for and provide for his people now. That's what the festival of booths or shelters was all about. It's on the last day of this festival, the 21st day, that Haggai is spent, or sent to speak from the Lord. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. The Old Testament also holds uh, another 21st day of the seventh month event that is significant. And that's that it was on that day, the last day of the Feast of Booths, the Festival of Shelters, that Solomon dedicated the original temple in Jerusalem. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 8 that on the final day of the festival in the seventh month, so that's this festival of shelters, the Ark of the Covenant was brought from its tent and placed in the temple for the first time. 1 Kings 8.12 says that that moment is so overwhelming that the priests who are undertaking the work of making this happen are so overwhelmed by it that they just stop what they're doing. And they watch in awe and amazement as the presence of the Lord in a cloud descends upon the temple there in Jerusalem. And that cloud just settles in over uh, the Holy of Holies where the ark was taken into. We're told that they stop what they're doing because, quote, the glory of the Lord filled or settled upon the temple. 
And then the rest of 1 Kings chapter 8 is this remarkable prayer that Solomon gives where he says that there's no one like Yahweh the Lord, that his temple is going to be the place where the Israelites find refuge and forgiveness, that the nations would be drawn to its glory and its its splendor, and that the glory of the temple would be unrivaled by anything in all of the world. That happens on the 21st day of the seventh month in the days of Solomon. And so here's what we have in Haggai 2 verse 1. We've got the Israelites living in tents for a week. It's the last day of that, the eighth day. We have the beginning of the temple sitting over still kind of in uh, shambles, just a foundation. And we have the memory of Solomon dedicating the original temple and the glory of the Lord settling upon it. And it's into that setting that Haggai comes and in verse 3 he speaks what had to have been just a depressing reminder. Who is left among you who saw this house, that's the temple, in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Look over at the foundation, he says. It's puny. There's nothing there. It looks like nothing in terms of scope as the original. It doesn't look like anything in in comparison to decoration like the original. Its size is vastly different. Your resources available to fill it, are nothing like the wealth of the days of Solomon. Ezra 3 verse 12 is the narrative description of when the foundation of this temple was laid. And we're told that those who remember the original temple wept when the foundation of this one was laid. They wept not primarily because of the joy of being back home in Jerusalem, but they wept in sadness because of the difference of what laid before them versus what they remembered in the past. It's just so small. And Haggai says, from your tents here, look over at that and just be aware of the fact that it's tiny. I know it's tiny. You know it's tiny. It looks shabby compared to the old one. Let's just all soak that in together. The date here matters. The reminder of that old temple matters because the truth of what the Lord is about to say matters a lot. Jump down to verse 6. The Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will provide peace. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord just is talking about His strength here. How strong He is. There's this small temple footing laid over there, and He says, look, I want you to understand. I will fill this house. I will do it. I am strong enough to do that. Just walk with me through this. First service uh, didn't realize that I actually wanted answers to these questions. So this is group participation. Who filled the garden with animals and plants? The Lord. That's right. Who filled the ark with two animals of every kind? The Lord, not Noah. Noah was commanded to do it, but if you actually go back and read the story, it says Noah was obedient and the Lord filled the ark. It's kind of a weird thing. The Lord fills it. Who took Abraham and Sarah when they were beyond childbearing age and filled them into this mass of people who would be a blessing to the earth? The Lord. Who filled the bellies of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness? Who put fear and filled 
the hearts of the people of Jericho with fear as the Israelites marched around the outside of their city. The Lord. Who filled Xerxes with compassion when Esther walked in on behalf of her people? The Lord. Who fills the storehouses with snow and then sends that snow wherever he wants? The Lord. Who filled the prophets' mouths with words so that they spoke on behalf of the Lord? The Lord. Who's going to fill that house? The Lord. Over here in your tents, sad about how little this temple looks, God says, I'm going to fill it. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and the treasures of the nations are going to come into that temple and I will do it because I'm strong enough to do it. It doesn't matter how big it is. I'm not primarily concerned with its square footage. I'm going to fill that. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I grew up watching Full House. It was like the favorite show in my family. And there's an episode of Full House where the ice cream man drives by the Tanner family residence and Michelle is in the living room. She runs up to her room and she grabs her piggy bank. And she doesn't know that you can just pull a plug out of the bottom of the piggy bank and get all the change out. So she flips it upside down and she's shaking the pig. And she wants the money to come out of the little slot in the top. And she's, give me back my money, you pig. Right, God says, I'm about to take the earth and I'm just going to shake it and the treasure of the nations is coming. Give me back my people, you earth. And they're all coming into the temple because I'm strong enough to fill it. This isn't about you and your finely adorned homes. It's not about the scope of what you're able to build. This is about me and I'm strong enough to fill that little thing full of the treasures of the nations. The Lord will fill His house and the Lord will adorn His house. Look in verse 8. The silver and the gold belong to me, declares the Lord. I don't care how much wealth you have. I'm not primarily concerned with whether or not you can overlay everything with gold in here and plate everything with gold. I don't care if the thresholds of the doors are overlaid with silver or if you've got all the gems and the stones in the world to fill it in the treasury. It's all mine anyways. I'm not concerned with that. I'll adorn this house. The silver and the gold belong to me. The cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. The blades of grass on a million front yards are the Lord's. The planets in a billion galaxies are His. He's going to adorn His house. It's not about what the Israelites can do. Look, you're living in these shabby little tents over here thinking about how I provided for you in the wilderness when your ancestors were wandering around after the the exodus. Look, just the same way I dropped manna from heaven, I can fill that thing with gold if that's what I wanted. It's all mine. I can do that. I'm strong enough to do that. And he says that the Lord will be the glory of his house. I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this temple will be greater than that of the first. I'll fill this house with glory because I'm going to be there, not because of the work that you do. What made the mountain that Moses went up to receive the law glorious? The presence of the Lord. It's not that Mount Sinai in and of itself was just such a spectacular place that glory just happened to fill it. No, the cloud of the Lord's presence descended upon that mountain. The Israelite people said, whoa, Moses, we're not interested in going up there. You go up there, maybe you'll live. And Moses walked up and his face became radiant because the presence of the Lord was there. What made the tent of meeting as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness glorious? The presence of the Lord is presence descends on it in a cloud. What made the original temple glorious? That moment in 
1 Kings chapter 8, it's the presence of the Lord and His glory. When Isaiah sees inside the throne room of heaven and declares, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, what makes that throne room glorious? The Lord. What's going to make this new temple glorious? The Lord. He says, I'm strong enough in and of myself to make this place glorious. It isn't about what you do or what you bring. I will be the glory of this place. It will be glorious because I will be there and I am glorious. It will be worthy of me because I will be there and I am worthy. We said last week at the end of uh, our message that in New Testament times, when we talk about the house of the Lord, we're talking about the church, big C church, the world over. That we're told in the New Testament that the Lord builds his house of his people now, and his presence dwells among his people. Who's going to fill that house? The Lord. Amen. I mean, right now, right now, the Lord is shaking the heavens and the earth, and literally, the nations are coming into his house. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The Lord is doing that work. He's filling his house, and he's adorning it with the beauty and the splendor of every skin complexion that you can think of, every language that you've ever heard and all the ones that you haven't heard, every culture that exists on the face of our planet from all time, he's just filling into his house. He's adorning it with the beauty of all that he has created, and he's the glory of it. He's the glory of the church. The church, Look, look around. Look at the person next to you. Look at him. The church ain't glorious because of that person right? You probably know that person, and you know darn well that the church isn't glorious because of that person. The church is glorious because the presence of the Lord is among his people. He's strong enough to fill his house. He's strong enough to adorn his house. He's strong enough to be the glory of his house. Amen? Amen. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. The Lord is strong. And then look in the middle of verse 4, just right in the middle of it. There's one one-word sentence in there that's got an exclamation point. I'm strong enough to fill this place. I'm strong enough to adorn this place. I'm strong enough to be the glory of this place. And then he looks at the Israelites people, uh, the Israelite people, and he says, "Work. You get to work now." He could snap his fingers like Thanos, right? And whatever he wants to have happen could happen. Literally, the lumber that was talked about in chapter 1 that's up in the hills, it could just grow legs and walk down and build itself into a temple if the Lord wanted to do that. He's the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord of hosts. He could do that however he wants to, and yet he looks at his people and he says, the sovereign way that I'm choosing to build that house is that you are going to get to work. You are going to build it. And I'll fill it, and I'll adorn it, and I'll be the glory of it, but you work. You don't kick your heels up and watch while this happens. You roll your sleeves up and you get your hands dirty. You get involved. That's how this is going to happen. The Israelite people could be strong because the Lord is strong. They could work hard because he's the one ultimately doing the work. They need not fear because he is present among them. And don't miss sort of the juxtaposition of what's happening here. In chapter 1, Haggai showed up and he said, you're apathetic, you're indifferent, you live in these finely furnished homes while the temple of the Lord lies in ruins over there, it's just a foundation and weeds growing up through the stones. How dare you do this? And then they repent and they obey and they go back to work. But at some point they've got to harvest, so understandably they stop and they harvest and then at the end of that they move out into tents outside Jerusalem somewhere. 
And while they're living in shabby little rundown tents that are supposed to remind them of what happened at the Exodus, the Lord says, hey, look, look over there at the temple. It's small, isn't it? It doesn't look great, does it? You don't have the means to make it nearly as beautiful as in Solomon's day, but you better buckle up because I'm about to blow your mind with what I'm going to do in that thing. You've left your finely furnished home behind and now you're living in this tent and I'm saying to you, that temple's glory is going to so far exceed the glory of the first one. I'm going to fill it and I'm going to adorn it and I'm going to be the glory of it and I'm strong enough to do it. Now you get to work and you build it. It's this beautiful picture of the Lord's strength. The issue was never in chapter 1 with the opulence of the Israelites' homes. That's not really what God's upset about. It's not really upset about the shabby state of his current home. No, he's upset about the sincerity of the Israelites' hearts. Just do the work. Just be strong. Work and build the place so that I can fill it, so that I can adorn it, so that I can be the glory of it. I can do so much more than you could ever possibly do, but I'm calling you to work. I want to answer now the second question that we've been talking about as we've worked through these minor prophet passages. And that's, what are we supposed to do with this? And let me be really clear as we jump in. The most direct contextual comparison between this text here and us today, a few thousand years later, is about building the Lord's house. It's about the growth and the uh, expansion of God's church the place where he dwells. And so I'm going to talk over the next few minutes about discipleship and evangelism. But I do think that we can expand this to include any work on behalf of the Lord. I think we can expand this to include serving the poor and needy, working within a ministry inside the local church or through a parachurch organization, tangibly loving and serving our community. The Lord is strong to work through any of that. But here specifically, he's talking about building his house. And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. And your temptation is going to be to think to yourself, this is someone else's task. But every time you're tempted to think that, I want you to look back into the middle of verse 4 and see that one sentence word, work, and I want you to be reminded that that is spoken to you. Look at the person next to you. Look at, look at him and say, this is for you. Say that louder. What, what are we, whistle at a golf match? <laughs> Look at the person next to you again. And this time say, this is for me. All right, here we go. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, three times in verse 4, the Lord gives an encouragement to the people to be strong. That's, that's number one, be strong. You draw your strength from the strength of the Lord. Why can you be strong in the work that you do on behalf of the Lord? Well, because of everything that just came in verses 6 through 9. That's why. He's strong. So you can be strong. This begins internally within us. Chiefly, this begins by turning to the Lord for the first time and allowing Him to become your strength. Your strength for salvation eternally and your strength for life here and now. You cannot walk in the Lord's strength if you do not first look to Him as Savior. No work you do, no goodness you acquire, no action on your part could ever possibly save you. You need the strength of the strong arm of the Lord by grace, by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to save you. There is your strength. 
If you look to or you trust anything else for that kind of strength, ultimately it's going to fail you. Not only in life will you end up just disappointed and hurt by the thing that totally dropped the ball, but you'll stand before the Lord in judgment one day and that thing will have been insufficient. But the Lord is strong to save. He's the only thing strong to save. And so we're strong in the Lord's strength. And as we walk with Him, we've got this continual dependence upon the Lord's strength for all the work that we do in our life. We set about a discipleship relationship or we set out to share the truth of the gospel and we understand that ultimately the Lord is going to fill His house with His people. Ultimately, He's going to adorn His house and He's going to be the glory of it, but I'm going to get to work and I'm going to be strong in that because the Lord has promised, He has declared, literally, five times in nine verses, He says, this is a declaration. It's a promise. I'm making a statement. Not a prediction of something that might happen. Not wishful thinking about something that could happen. No, this is a declaration. I am strong enough to do that, so you be strong. And the second thing is, we work hard. I mean hard. You wake up, and the first thing you're thinking about, if you're a follower of Jesus, shouldn't be the fact that you're going to go to work and work hard at some task. It should be that you're going to wake up, and you're going to work hard at displaying and proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ so that everyone can see it, and you work at it. An internal change within us of salvation leads to this outward impact. Joyce Baldwin says it this way, that transformed hearts do not occur in isolation. Transformed hearts lead to transformed hands. Transformed hands do God's work. And so we get to work. And we don't need to compare. That's, that's one of the beauties of what happens here in this passage. The Lord, through Haggai, intentionally makes the people look over at the new uh, temple foundation there and be sad about how small it is. And then he says, I don't even care. You don't need to compare this temple to the old one because I'm going to fill it and adorn it and be the glory of it no matter what size it is, just like I was the last one. I don't know what your platform or what your sphere of influence is. It might be one person or it might be 10,000, but it's not about the number or the size. We get to work and we work hard faithfully and with a sincerity of heart. That means mom and dad young kids and you think to yourself, gosh, we're in the season of life where it's just hard enough to like, keep the kids alive. Disciple those little ones. Raise them to know and love the Lord. Help them to understand the truth of Scripture and who God is. Be faithful to what's right in front of you. Work hard. Trust that the Lord will fill those little ones with faith, that He'll adorn them with the beauty of the gospel and the fruits of the Spirit, that He will be the glory of your children. Not the stuff that they do at their sport or the grades that they get in their classes. No, He will be the glory of your children, and you work hard at that. Teachers, coaches, love those students. It's mid-May here, and you've got like, a week extra of school because of all the snow days. And you're thinking to yourself, I just want these kids moved out of here and sent home for the summer so that I can get a fresh, fresh batch next year who maybe won't be so annoying, right? Love those kids. Maybe you work in a public school setting where you can't just outright share the gospel, then you just live it in front of them. Let them see what it looks like when the truth of who Jesus Christ is comes into contact with another person. Let them see what the disposition and the attitude of Jesus Christ looks like with skin on and you work hard at it. Put together great lessons and all that. Coach really well. Try to win some games, but more importantly, work hard at being an accurate reflection of Jesus Christ to those kids. 
You work in a business. You've got someone in the cubicle or the office next to you. Same thing. It's about sincerity, not the size of your platform. The Lord can and He will work powerfully through any person in any circumstance who sincerely commits themselves to working in His strength for His glory. Roll up your sleeves. Get to work. Get your hands dirty. Be strong in it. Work hard. And then last, be bold. The end of uh, verse 5 here, he says, don't be afraid. Be bold about the work that you do. Have no fear in it. The presence of the Lord is with you. That's a declaration from Him. We're to be wise and intentional and loving and gentle in our work for the Lord and in our sharing of the gospel and our discipleship relationships. And yet we're to be unashamed and unafraid and undaunted by whatever obstacles may infringe upon us or we might feel like stands in our way. Be bold. The presence of the Lord is there with you. He's worthy of the sincere effort. You can be strong in that and know that He'll fill His house. He'll adorn it. He'll be the glory of it, but you're supposed to work. And so be strong and work hard and be bold. Let me illustrate this with a story. It's about a man named Edward Kimball. You've never heard of him. None of us probably have ever heard of Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher who every Monday morning, he would do the same thing. He would walk through his town and he had kind of a normal route and he would share the gospel with individuals in his town. And one day in 1885, he walked into a shoe store. And he shared the gospel with a man named Dwight Moody, who obviously grew up to become a great evangelist. But that particular day, the gospel piqued Dwight Moody's interest for the very first time. But it didn't stop there. Later in the 1800s, Moody personally discipled a man named J. Wilbur Chapman, a great evangelist of his time, who went on to disciple a man named Billy Sunday, a professional baseball player who also ended up being one of the greatest evangelists of the early 1900s. In 1924, Billy Sunday was invited to evangelize and speak to a group of businessmen. The outflow of that event was that those businessmen in Charlotte, North Carolina, decided that they wanted to host an event whereby they could share the truth of the gospel. So they invited a man named Malachi Ham in 1934 to come and share the truth of the gospel. And right there in Charlotte, North Carolina, at that event, Mordecai, excuse me, Mordecai, not Malachi, Mordecai Ham shared the gospel and a young Billy Graham came to faith for the very first time. Who did the more impressive work? Billy Graham or Edward Kimball? Doesn't really matter. The Lord's filling his house. He's shaking the nations. He's bringing the treasure of the nations into his house. He's adorning his house with the glory of all the tribes and nations and tongues of all of the world. And he is the glory of it. And so we just get to work sincerely and we're strong in it. We're bold in it. We work hard in it. And we just trust that the Lord's going to do what the Lord said he would do because the Lord is strong. I don't know what your platform is, but work hard. I don't know what your circle of influence is, but work hard. I don't know who you might be in discipleship relationships with, but work hard and trust that down the line, the Lord might do something incredible. He's building more than you could see. Up to this point in Haggai, there hasn't been anything that when we think about prophecy uh, that we would say, oh yeah, that's really prophetic. That's like a, a, something about the future that would have fulfillment that would come later. But verse 9 is the first time that happens. He says, the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace 
in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. As we've worked through Zephaniah and Haggai, we've talked about how these Old Testament prophecies have immediate and future fulfillment. If you're interested in this kind of historical stuff, the immediate fulfillment of that word, that the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, and that I'll provide peace in this place, that comes to fruition under Herod, who rebuilds this version of the temple into something that has kind of a shadow uh, of the splendor of Solomon's temple. That's the immediate fulfillment. The future fulfillment is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and he will have a house that's established that far outshines the glory of any other house that's ever been built to the Lord, and that is marked by peace. It happens on the cross, where peace with God is available for all of humanity, and the glory of God is displayed most clearly. And in that moment, we see that the Lord is strong enough to bear our sin. I... I get so, I'm the pastor, right? So I get excited about these kinds of things. But here in verse 6, we're told once more, in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. You know what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? There's a literal earthquake. The heavens and the earth physically, literally shake. Once more in a little while I'm going to do it, the Lord says. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And what happens in that moment is that this veil in the temple is rent into, it tears apart, so that now anyone, all nations, can go into the presence of the Lord. I mean, how beautiful is that? Once more, there's going to be a day where I shake the heavens and the earth so that all the treasure of the nations can come into my presence, and it happens there on the cross with Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing in the entire world. Now there's peace available between God and humanity for all of the nations. And it's the most glorious thing that the world has ever experienced or ever will experience. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And there's peace in our work today. Because we know that Jesus is strong enough to bear our sin, but he's also strong enough to build his house. And the glory is unto him. And so we just work in peace. We work hard. We're strong. We're courageous. We understand that he's going to build his house. That that effort is not about our striving, it's about his strength. That it's not up to us to create his glory in the world, but instead he's filling the world with his glory and he's using his people to do it. Oftentimes when we talk about the Great Commission, we just say, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. But it starts with a statement of the Lord's strength. Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. I'm the strong one. You get to work. And then a a following affirmation of the Lord's strength. And I'll be with you until the end of the age. That's what it is. The Lord is strong. And He's going to fill His house and adorn His house and be the glory of His house. But He looks at us and He says, get to work because He's strong enough to build it. And then last but not least, if you're a follower of Jesus, this should be kind of the great hope of your life. And that's that He is strong enough to bring us home. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, there's a coming day where you will have unending peace in the unveiled presence of the Lord's glory. You can be absolutely certain of it. And between right here, right now, and that moment, we should be driven and sustained by His strength and His grace to get to work. 
We build the house. We go up into the hills. We get the lumber and we build. We disciple. We share. We go. We give. We pray. We serve. And we look forward to the day where he's going to carry us across the finish line of our faith and into his eternal peace and his eternal glory. Uh, It's just absolutely beautiful. The Lord is strong enough to do all of that. And so I want to encourage you. Get to work. Work! Exclamation point. The Lord is strong enough to fill his house. He's strong enough to adorn it, and he's strong enough to be the glory of it, and we can just work fearlessly and courageously and hard. We don't kick up our heels and watch what the Lord is doing in the world. We roll up our sleeves, and we get our hands dirty alongside him. Amen? Because one day, I pray that there's a moment for each and every one of us where we stand before the Lord, and we hear the following words, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many Share in your master's joy. Part of that well done, good and faithful servant will be about our work exclamation point to build the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. You can stand up.